Manx Radio Podcasts, powered by Shaw. Hello and welcome to the Women's Day Podcast. A quick look back at some of our highlights from the past few days. And this week, we met an amazing woman who lost part of her leg during her army career and now goes round giving talks to people about how to overcome adversity. She's absolutely incredible. We also discussed why women are putting themselves at risk by ignoring key health issues. And we talked about the woman who was sent home for not wearing high heels to work. But first, on Friday, we talked about Eurovision, and that is a subject that I know all about, clearly. OK, well, uh, we have been asking which is your favourite Eurovision uh, song, song. Is that right? Yeah. <laughs> and uh, the unanimous answer was Walking on Sunshine by Katrina and the Waves, probably because it won. So uh, to finish today, we will have that song to play us out. If you want to keep up to date with what didn't, we're doing win, on... Uh, didn't it win? Didn't I thought win. it did. Came second, didn't it? No, oh, no, well, you no. See, well, Katrina and the Waves love Shine a Light won. Walking on oh, Sunshine just right. happens to be oh, around. It's the wrong song. It's the wrong song. We like it anyway. Yeah, but we're doing this one because it's sunny and that's all that matters. Bike for Life was an initiative that we started last year. Uh, we spoke to various different groups on the island. We spoke to individuals who have a long-term health-related issues or disabilities. And we found out that a lot of individuals wanted to get back into cycling. So this all started last year and it was a great success. We had loads of people come down, adults and children. So we're carrying it on this year, which is fantastic. So the, the bikes themselves are adapted, are they? Yeah, they're, they're inclusive bikes. So uh, we have a range of bikes varying from trikes to special needs kind of bikes, quad bikes. We obviously have tandems and mountain bikes already to use, but it's just sort of building that up, building the number of bikes that we that we have available. So... Hopefully, it will reach everybody's needs and everybody can take part in cycling. I want to ride my bicycle. I want to ride the hope is that for then individuals tend to get a bit of confidence and then either purchase a bike themselves or, or go out onto the plantations or out on the road if they've got enough confidence. But at the moment, what we do is just a little session around the NSC Raceway. So it's all closed off. Uh, obviously no traffic whatsoever and it's just a really safe and enjoyable environment for people to get involved in. It must be such a good thing for people with regards to not just obviously physical health but you know sort of emotional psychological because if you, if you either have a, a long-lasting disability or you've had an accident or something that has affected you this has got to be a good thing for yeah, you. Yeah absolutely we've got individuals who I guess have given up with exercise and think that they can't take part in anything. And uh, Bike for Life is just a great new initiative for people to get back involved in cycling. I mean, we had individuals who were 85 plus at the Bike for Life sessions last year, which was great to see. You know, they wanted to make sure that they could cycle with their grandchildren or what have you. So it's just great to give that sort of new life back to actually take part in sport again. Well, we just know each other. Well, well, it's like, like family to each other. So, you know... Uh, yeah, no, we, we just get on with it, and it's and it's great because yeah. it's fun. And my strengths are Dave's weaknesses, and Dave's weaknesses are my strengths. So it's a great partnership, and and we do. We're genuinely enthusiastic about what we do because we're incredibly privileged to do it. So and we're very lucky, um, you know, and and we appreciate that most every day. And you travel so much mm. as well with your job. Where have your favourite places been that you've been to? Would you say? Oh, it's too many. In the early days, Argentina was an amazing trip. Yeah. Uh, Namibia, it, Namibia was stunning, you know. To, I mean, that that was that was the biggest thing because when we first set out, we never set out to be a cookery show. 
you know, and we wouldn't, we set up across the Namibian desert. There's not a lot there, really. Oh, yeah. oh just, it's kind of like in those days <laughs> with the BBC, we were, we were fortunate to be able to kind of just get on with it and see what happened. Mm -hmm. We had some very good producers. What would you eat? Springbok, Kudo. Uh, Which is generally really good meat to have, isn't it? it? Yeah, it's very lean. Yeah, well. yeah, 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 and then one of the things, we, we put this, this earth oven, do you remember, with that leg of lamb yeah, with yeah. lion berries, and we cooked over the wood from the Orumborumbongo tree, and I'm not having you on. Oh, and the can't say that, definitely. Orumborumbongo <laughs> tree. <laughs> and it's the iron tree, and it's a, yeah. it's a very sacred tree, because it's very dense, and it makes incredible wood fires, but the only problem is that we were on the Garibis Plains at the time, <laughs> And uh, and we did this earth oven and it was all fab and marvellous, but we forgot we put it. I goes, did you leave the stick in, dear? He goes, no, you were going to go smell the lamb. Smell the lamb. But there's like 533,000 square miles of desert. And there's no and point in going with your bare feet because the said desert was hot. So it was just kind of <laughs> sniffing around. And in the end, we found our dinner. But it was, it was just ridiculous. Where the sun went down, there was still one patch of hot desert. That was our tea. <laughs> there's my tea. Get in. But do you know the second country that we ever filmed in was the Isle of Man? And again, oh, that was because yeah. we always wanted to go to the TT. And so we thought, right, so we went to Namibia, then the Isle of Man. And Bit of a contrast. Yeah, the food is more <laughs> accessible. <laughs> really, <laughs> the Isle of Man. Yeah. Yeah. I tell you what, it's funny enough as well, it wasn't as hot. <laughs> You've mentioned the TT yeah. and you love your bikes. Have you been over and experienced the whole TT? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, we have. I mean, part of the problem and the frustration for us about that, uh, about actually us getting to the TT is that it's absolutely slam bang right in the middle of when we're all normally filming the big series. So it's always a constant continuing frustration for us. But Dave got lucky because I wasn't very well, so he got to come one yeah, day. Yeah, uh, two years ago, and I got to come for all of it, you know, bring my stepson and my wife, and we all came out here. But we have the, I think the TT is the best time. We have such a good time. Oh, um, it's great that you're so enthusiastic about it because obviously it's coming mm. up just in a few weeks' oh, time. Yeah. And it's a great thing for the island and it's an amazing thing for motorsport. So we might even see you on a bike going around the course racing, who knows? Well, no, last time I did on Mad Sunday, I fell off and broke my arms. <laughs> Maybe not I'm forbidden. 22 minutes to three, and we are talking about the Manx Court Mission. Our studio guests are Elaine Christian, MBE. Do you use your MBE? Not often. I bet you don't, yeah. but you should do. And uh, <laughs> Kelly Darlow, who is manager of David Gray House here in the Isle of Man. And Elaine, you gave us a, a potted history of what the Manx Court Mission is all about. And, you know, we talked about why more people don't understand about or even know about the actual charity so how do people then get in touch with you well hopefully today some people will realize if they want to get in touch with us and would like to become a member and help us out by giving a, an annual subscription that would be very nice which would help our financial state if anybody feels like putting on a function for us that would be great because the people who are on the committee now few and far between because the commitment of, of lots of people has passed on or they have passed away really um if somebody feels like putting on an effort for us because it is as we said it's a a charity that people don't fly the flag for and um, but we do need the funding to do the things that we do and i feel that we do a very valuable thing for society because people need to be um, aware of the work that does go on to try and help these people to stop them reoffending, help their children get on with their education, help them with their education because quite often the people who end up in 
our prisons have not had the background that they should have had or the help that they should have had. And hopefully it's just the fundraising side. If people want grants for anything, Kelly could probably tell you about that, but the person to contact initially would be our chairman, who is um, Quinton Gill. And he's given me permission to give his phone number out, which is 491735. And if anybody wanted more general information, if they emailed greenmount at manx.net, they would get some information about how, how to help. And just give me an idea, Elaine, of what sort of things you can apply for grants for. What do you pay for? Well, we pay for a lot of things, really, Kelly. Kelly will tell you because her, her clients have benefited from these sort of things, haven't they? Yeah, that's absolutely right, Elaine. I've seen them, um, I've worked very closely with people over, probably over the last eight to 10 years who um, have benefited from help from the Manx Court mission, um, sometimes in quite a small way, um, which has a massive impact. So we've seen people benefit from b- being helped to purchase suitable clothing for work or work boots for um, getting jobs on building sites and things like that. Um, We've also seen people benefit from um, driving lessons and gym memberships, which may seem to some people like quite a nicety, um, but actually they're so, so important because they give people a massive boost of self-esteem and they give them the confidence to actually use the skills that they're able to get with this help to go out and move forward in their lives um, instead of returning to a life of offending behaviour. Um, Most recently we've been assisted from Manx Court Mission in setting up a, um, a fishing club within our service. Um, Obviously it doesn't get used much over the winter but we're able to purchase a a whole range of new equipment um, from rods and reels and tackle um, which basically means that our service users are able to get out to all different parts of the island with a member of staff who can then teach them all about fishing Um, and hopefully they you know they bring back something that they can actually learn how to fill it and cook for themselves as well which is quite an old-fashioned skill I think but something that people don't necessarily um, feel able to do on their own and without the help of Manx Court Mission they would never have been able to learn those skills or have the equipment to go out and do things like that. Elaine, you've been involved with the charity for, for over 25 years. Have you come to any conclusions about how to reduce reoffending? Well, I think it's really that we have to have an open mind because in in the early days, you know, of, of me being concerned with the prison and with the magistracy, people would come out of prison. There wasn't a great deal of help given to them in those early days. And, you know, people were very reluctant to give work to them. And, and that is still, to some extent, is still going on today. Once you've got a pr- prison record, it's very hard for you to, to get decent employment. Um, and some of these offenders have been in prison since they were very, very young, really, sort of 19, going to prison, young offenders before that, maybe. Um, and I, I just think that they all need a second chance. And if they are willing, and this is the main thing, you know, they have are willing to do something and want to do it, you know, if we can give them help, for example, a lot of them in prison would love to get on the catering team. And some of them wanted to take catering qualifications. If they came out of prison and wanted to carry on with their catering um, career, they need uniform, they need special equipment to do that. And education in itself, if you need to buy books for any courses that you want to do, well, if they've been in prison for two years or more, they've nothing behind them, no financial savings, 
they come out, they're on the meanest, I don't mean mean, but on the lowest of, of benefits, perhaps. So they can't achieve these sort of things. And I just feel that everybody deserves a second, a second chance to do better. I suppose this is a question for, for both uh, you, Kelly and Elaine. And I, I just wonder how you feel, maybe the general public perception of people who've been in prison, I mean, how much that, that holds people back from actually coming out and starting a new life. Kelly, what would you say? I think there is a stigma around people that have a criminal record, but I'm happy to say that I do think that it is changing. People are becoming more aware, more open-minded, and we are breaking down barriers in terms of getting people into full-time education or employment. But as Elaine said, things like that are it's absolutely reliant on people being open-minded and being able to see past that record and past that previous behaviour um, and giving people the chance to actually step up and prove themselves and show that actually, you know, they can hold down a job and they can um, stay out of prison. I think one of the the other things that maybe isn't always taken into account is the impact on the families exactly. of, of people who are in prison. Exactly. You know, the idea of, of taking young children up there to visit, for example, mm. and and I guess, I'm guessing Elaine, the stigma associated with that. Mm. That's true. In in recent years, we've had in the prison itself. Um, the Mothers' Union have done great things by having a play corner for when children go and helping out in that in that way. When I first was associated with the prison, children weren't allowed. And when I put forward that we should do something about this, we actually um, wanted to have a, um, a mobile classroom within the old prison where the children could go. And you have no idea at the reports and the... the things that were said why should these kids be seen you know see their father we've got to do things like this you can't go on separating people you've got to work together those children can then end up criminals themselves if they're not guided in the right way there is maybe again the the misconception um and i'm saying that as, as somebody who has no experience with the prison system but that it's an easy life that you go up to to the the prison in Jerby and actually you know it's a bit cushy <laughs> well it's not if you think that the the chief thing is that they are denied their freedom you can't choose a menu you can't choose when you go out and get your fish and chips or when you go to have a pint or when you decide to ring up somebody there are all rules and regulations you have to follow and it is a denial of their freedom and we could go on for a long time about if there are alternatives to prison which in some cases I think maybe there are. Um, but in the end, if people are deemed to be dangerous to society, there has to be some sort of um, retribution for them. And certainly if people are really dangerous, some way of keeping them out of society. But while we've got them there, they should be treated humanely and helped in whatever way they can to better their lives, to change their lives. And if they get in prison and and light dawns on them, you know, if they want to do a certain course, certainly we should look into see, well, why can't we do this? But the Manx Court's mission does need a lot more support, a lot more um, news spread about it, really, to say the work that goes on. And it goes on quietly in the background. We don't go out flying the flag and shouting, come and help Manx Court's mission, but we do need some more help and some more financial input to help the likes of Kelly. The people can apply for these grants are the people who are working with 
criminal offenders or people who've been in prison or awaiting prison or waiting courts. The social workers, the probation workers, um, they can all apply to see if they can get a grant for anything. The person themselves can't apply directly. It has to come through one of the, like through Kelly or through, through these social workers, as I say. But if they haven't and they've explored every other avenue, you know, if there's help needed for, for something, the cooker that's blown up in the kitchen, you know, and they need a little bit of help and they can't get it from anywhere else, they are entitled to apply to Manx Courts Mission. Kelly, what would you say would be the typical attitude of somebody who has been in prison and, and comes to David Gray House about starting again? Um, oh, it changes from person to person, <coughs> to be quite honest. Uh, but I think in general, people come to us and they're quite dubious. They, they're not sure what's going to be available to them. They've often had so many disappointments and they've actually been let down um, so much in the past that they struggle to believe that things can be different. So a lot of what we do in our role is actually supporting them to build up their self-esteem and sort of upskilling them, giving them the confidence and the self-belief that things can be different but then it's things like Manx Court Mission that put the practical and the financial assistance in place that actually help us to demonstrate how different things can be for people and usually that's when we actually can see people on that journey um, really benefiting and moving forward. How from your point of view do you feel when when you see somebody who does go on to reoffend? Um. It's important in my role, you can't take it personally. We can't help everybody, um, but our service is there to do what we can for the people that want to engage. Um, and ultimately, it is reliant on that willingness uh, and motivation by the individual to make the personal changes that are needed. I, yeah, I grew up out in the country. My um, eldest brother had always wanted to join the army, so he kind of made it a conversation that we had at home, I guess. And I knew that you know, doing something physical um, was, was, as well as mentally challenging, was, was what I wanted in a career, and, and really sort of you know, properly working with people. Um, and then I, I guess I started to gain a concept of how proud I would be to serve my country as well. So it was a bit of a growing thing, but certainly from a young age. And in terms of, of training and actually getting into the army, how did that sort of live up to the dream? Um, well, always been physically active, you know, so played sport throughout school, um, trained, um, you know, really sort of conscientiously before, sort of during the end of sort of university, just before I went off to Sandhurst, so I could properly get up to speed. I did some travelling and made sure I carried on with my running and my sit-ups and press-ups and all that stuff. We had a programme to follow. Um, and then, yeah, the year at Sandhurst was... was really tough but so enjoyable you know you learn an awful lot about yourself about the girls and the, and the guys that you're training with um, you know a lot of uh, getting shouted at and sort of you know feeling like you're never going to get there and then of course you do and you commission and you go off and and then then the, the real job starts because that's when you start you know commanding soldiers and serving them and uh, and it's just an absolute dream and then in November 2008 I guess it's almost the unthinkable, but you know that you're going into a job which is potentially incredibly dangerous and you were involved in an incident. What do you remember about that? Well, firstly, thank you for mentioning that it's an incident, not an accident, because some people refer to it as the latter and they definitely made, meant to put the bomb there. So, um, yeah, you, you absolutely know that you're entering a high-risk environment, but equally you don't step out of the gates every day um, thinking that something's going to happen. You, you can't, you know, you couldn't function if you're going to think like that. 
So, um, you know, a few incidents had happened during the tour before the incident that I was involved in. Um, but again, you know, you get on with it. And I was very fortunate that the guys that I was working with um, were incredibly well drilled and, you know, all of the training kicked in and the evacuation was seamless. You know, so everybody from the guys that I was working with on the ground to the helicopter came in to, you know, airlift me and the other casualties out. Who it turned out was piloted by a friend of mine, bizarrely, small world that it is. Um, and then through hospital and back Camp Bastion, back to Birmingham Hospital, everything was just, I mean, seamless, as I said before. You know, you couldn't have hoped for what was a clearly a horrific situation, you couldn't have hoped for a better handling of it. I mean, you don't exactly hop out of bed on the first morning and think, here we go, new life, new start. But equally, I think I had um, a huge sense of perspective from, from the start, you know, from the point of view of the fact that I was still alive. Um, Kalasan Krishna had died in the explosion um, and I was safe back in the UK and back you know, with family and friends and being looked after whereas of course my boys were still out in Afghanistan so those two things really sort of served to help me to deal with it very quickly because I kind of had to you know there's no there was there was no um, excuse there was no you know nothing if I if I just kind of festered and felt sorry for myself then nothing was going to get any better um, but I didn't do it on my own you know I had an amazing support team around me as, as I still do so but this is the sort of the key to why you go around and do this public speaking now is really showing people that you can't have any regrets about anything and, and you really have to take whatever life throws at you and get on with it, which you did with a rather amazing expedition. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't think I've ever lived with regrets, actually. I think that was something that was sort of characteristic of me before um, being injured. Um, I don't really see the point in it. You know, you kind of, you know, looking forward to tomorrow is so much more exciting than looking back and sort of moping on the past. Um, yeah, the expedition um, was... Um, really something that I decided to take on because I felt that I wasn't um, physically achieving the level of function that I that I wanted so I chose to have my leg amputated um, the alternative was a you know pretty painful um, prospect that wasn't going to give me much kind of option for, for physical activity so I didn't think that sounded great um, so having a prosthetic limb I thought you know would, would enable me to continue to live an active life I didn't feel you know a couple of years down the line that I was really achieving what I wanted so had some revision surgery and took on the expedition because I thought well that was a good goal to work towards and sort of reminded that it's quite an extreme goal but I, I obviously needed something of that kind of magnitude to really get me out of the office you know into the gym out on the hills training and, and I think because it was a, a team expedition as well you know having a team to train for and with um, definitely helped because a lot of rehab had despite the sort of the you know, massive support team that you have around you it's quite a solitary journey you know so um, and then you know of course to be doing it for walking with the wounded you know the more that I became involved with the charity the more passionately I really felt about helping them to raise money and awareness for, for the incredible work that they do which is getting servicemen and women's lives back on track who haven't been as fortunate as me to be able to continue serving post-injury. And were you the only woman to complete that expedition? That um, no I was the only woman in the British team but there were two girls Margot and Therese in the uh, American team and then Vic's our amazing expedition manager as well who made it all happen. So um, that was three years ago. What's the next big goal then, Kate? <laughs> um, well, I, I'm physically, sort of physical challenge, so that's what people are often interested in. I'm off to Morocco in June with one of my teammates, actually, Ibi, from the expedition, um, one of my tent buddies. So we're going to go and climb Mount Tukkal with a group of people, which will be great fun. And um, the altitude in Antarctica was something that really hit me and I really struggled with. So I had sort of said that 
the next physical challenge I did, I, I wanted it to sort of involve altitude in some way, and it's nothing major, but it'll be it'll be great fun, and, and it'll be lovely just to have a few days walking walking in you know in the hills. Um, but you know, arguably my biggest challenge since the expedition was leaving the army last summer, so um, that was never as interesting an answer for people though. So I'm glad I've got Morocco to talk about now. <laughs> well, Kate, thank you so much, so much to talk to you about. We could talk to you all afternoon, but enjoy your brief stay here in the Isle of Man. And if people would like to find out more about the Walking for the Wounded charity, how can they find out about it? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so www.tw.org.uk for Walking with the Wounded. Um, and then I'm on you know, LinkedIn and Twitter, um, Corin Kate. So Corin Consulting is my business. So yeah, if uh, people would be you know, moved to certainly support the charity, that would be absolutely wonderful. Um, and clearly I'm here on behalf of the Royal Artillery as well. So we do have the Royal Artillery Association and Charitable Fund. And I know that there's a big presence of the artillery on the island as well. So huge thanks to the island for, for their support and our really important year of our 300 year celebrations. So what is this um, gynae cancer danger zone and how are we actually putting ourselves at risk? Okay, the thing that we're concerned about, and this is something from a survey that we've done, and, and, and sadly what we're hearing is that we women are too embarrassed, the majority of us. Um, well, nearly a fifth are embarrassed to go to the GP. A lot of us, because we're worried that it's a guy um, that's going to be the GP, we find a third of women actually normalise symptoms. Um, and, and what I mean by that is bleeding. Vaginal bleeding is one of the um, most common symptoms of many of the gynaecological cancers, especially the womb and cervix cancer. And we actually normalise unusual bleeding. We're so used to having periods, aren't we, we girls, right from when we start our fertility, you know, when our periods start, right up to menopause. We're so used to having a period every month unless we take the pill to stop periods or unless we have a baby when we stop taking the pill. Um, and, and so we, we just normalise bleeding and, and nothing becomes unusual for us. And so what we really want to do is to say to women, do you know, go and get bleeding checked. If, you're, if it's in between a period, after sex or after your menopause, just go and tell your doctor. This is actually something we've um, covered a, a lot recently, the idea that women are embarrassed to go to the doctor because we've been, to, of course, last last month was um, Bacterial Vaginosis Month mm. and we were discussing how women are, are just uncomfortable to go to them. But of course, you can, you can, if you do want to, you can request a female doctor anyway, can't you? Well, you can. And in fact, I was talking to a young woman yesterday. I was at a fundraising event for the Eve Appeal held in Basingstoke and she came up to me afterwards. I'd done a talk and she said... Do you know, the thing is, is I want to go for my, my cervix smear, but I'm, I'm just frightened it's going to be a man. So I said, well, look, you know, be proactive, continue being proactive. You come up and you've spoken to me, give your GP surgery a ring, give them the heads up that actually if it's a man, you're going to find it difficult. Find out when the nurse is on duty, you know, and that actually helps the GP's practice as well because they want to see you. So it's just taking it being a little bit proactive or if you're very, very worried and you just want to talk things through, call me. So today we launch Ask Eve on 0808-802-0019 or you can find us on the website. Just put in Ask Eve to your web browser and you'll find us and you can ask us questions and get the confidence to, to go to your GP. How prevalent is gynaecological cancer? It's the fourth largest cancer, all, all the cancers put together, it's the fourth largest cancer of women, in, women of, in this country. It's just something that we don't talk about. I think it's quite often um, that we sort of think of women's cancers as breast cancers and those below the navel we just don't talk about. Yeah, and how dangerous is it to us? Well, 
if we catch the disease early enough, so if we go for those smears and get our cervix, catch our cervix cancer early enough, if we take that unusual bleeding or any other pelvic symptoms, so that might be uh, bloatedness or a heaviness or uh, change in bowel habits or peeing more often, you can see they're all rather nonspecific. If we take those symptoms to the GP early enough, many of the cancers can be diagnosed and cured. An interesting thing as well is the fact that it looks like the survival rates from these cancers are much better in Europe. Is that because, as you say, it's, you know, sort of we're not going to our doctor, so it's perhaps just a very British thing, or are they just sort of better equipped in Europe? Or Well, we all use the same drugs. We all use the same techniques um, through worldwide research. So I think you're probably right, Christy. Is it because there's a correlation that we just don't go to the GP soon enough because we just don't talk about it? So hence being here and talking with you today and sharing that fact let's get women to come to their GPs um, now did you hear about the 27 year old woman working for a city firm in London who was sent home for refusing to wear high heels Nicola Thorpe says she was laughed at when she told her bosses she didn't want to wear high heels on her first day as a corporate receptionist she arrived at the accountancy firm PwC wearing flats was told to go home without pay unless she went out and bought heels that were between two and four inches high she refused and alleges that Portico the firm that runs PwC's reception at its office in Embankment Central London followed through with the threats Portico has now apparently changed its policy, saying with immediate effect, all our female colleagues can wear plain, flat shoes. But, you know, she signed up to this job. Presumably there is a contract and Jackie Hall, it will have said at some point in there that heels were a necessity. I bet it was right in the small print. And I would never wear heels. Not ever. But that's not true of you, is it, Graham Hall? No, I used to have a lovely set of high heels, actually. <laughs> uh, I remember coming back from a Who concert late at night in Newcastle when I was a kid and as I was coming down the railway bridge I slipped from one step to the next and took both heels off and I had a three mile walk home on tiptoes. It was the first and last time I had a pair of high heels really. <laughs> and uh, poor old David Beard, you find it slightly difficult to find a pair of heels in size 11? I've had that problem before yeah when I had to wear them for one day couldn't find any had to wear a size 8. <laughs> <laughs> no sorry wait 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 why, why did you have to wear them for one day? Uh, it was a uh, fancy dress. Okay. Yeah, See, fancy dress is the perfect excuse, isn't it? Women Today, brought to you by CityWing.com for your next flight away. May the 14th sees the start of Arthritis Care Awareness Week and to talk about arthritis and the support that is available here in the Isle of Man, we're joined live in the studio by Ellen Gray, who's a rheumatology nurse, and Helen Cowley, who has arthritis, was diagnosed around 10 years ago and is a member of Arthritis Care, Ellen Vannon. Helen, talk me through, first of all, how having arthritis affects you on a day-to-day -day basis. Well, to start with, I used to be a PE teacher and I used to play hockey, football, netball, go swimming, all sorts of things. So now I can't do any of those things. And also, um, being a teacher, I, I actually can't physically do any of, teach any of those skills anymore either. Um, since getting arthritis, I've also had a child and without the support of my family I wouldn't have been able to do most of the things that I have done with him. Um, just everyday things like getting him out of bed, changing his nappy, things like that were really, really difficult. But now I've got um, more medication and it's all sorted and I'm a lot better. Because we were talking earlier about the preconception that there might be that arthritis is just a condition that affects older people but that really isn't the case yeah. and um, for young women especially what's the impact of going through pregnancy? Well 
I, I had stabilised. Um, I was on medication, methotrexate, and had been on for about four years. Um, but once me and my husband decided we wanted to have a child, then I had to come off that medication. Um, thankfully, we got pregnant, and then that means that the hormones take over, so you don't have actually have any pain during the pregnancy. But after he was born, that's when it all came back, um, and I was on lots of steroids and things to try and stop the pain. Um, it was really difficult choice whether to breastfeed or not because breastfeeding takes it out of you anyway. Um, but I, I persevered and then had to give up at four months. So that was that was a very difficult decision. But my health had to come first in the end. And how difficult has it been for you facing up to taking medication probably for the rest of your life? Well, to begin with, I didn't want to go on methotrexate because you hear lots of horrible stories about it. Um, it's quite a horrible drug, really, isn't it, Ellen? It can be, yes. Um, and it's not for everybody, but thankfully, I've been able to take it. Um, and you just get you just get used to having to take something. And I'd rather that than be in pain. So, we had a text in from Matt who said uh, I was diagnosed at nineteen with arthritis. It's not just for old people. And Ellen Gray, what are the the typical symptoms that might suggest to someone that it is a condition that they're suffering from? Um, the main things to look out for are regular periods of early morning stiffness of at least half an hour for weeks to months on end, um, particular swelling of the joints, flu-like symptoms, lethargy, fatigue, lack of interest in anything, um, working life people find the energy to go to work because obviously they don't want to be off sick or be labelled a skiver. Um, lots of psychosocial impact um, and often people push themselves to go to work every day and then they come home they've got no, nothing left to participate in any other part of normal healthy social life family life. I used to struggle into work when I was first diagnosed with splints on my arms and swollen everywhere just because you just keep try to keep going but you're in so much pain and as a teacher it's really difficult to try and hide that from the children and get on with it, really. But and what about the impact then on your sort of your mental well-being? Um, you do get very depressed at times, um, and the tiredness doesn't help. Um, thankfully, I'm I'm through it. So <laughs> now, um, Ellen Helen was talking about some of the treatment options. Um, how effective is the treatment that's available for arthritis? The drugs we have available now, which, um, I mean, I trained in the early 80s, um, back when patients didn't get the, the level of treatment that Helen's on until they were already quite disabled by it. Whereas now, um, worldwide, the thinking is treat it early, hit, hit it hard, basically, hit it early. And the long term prognosis is so much better than it was probably even 10 years ago when I first came into post on the island. Um, and, and there are new treatments out all the, you know, there are new developments coming through all the time. So it's not always that we can look at a person and say, you've got this, this will work. It's a question of a lot of the time it's trial and error and people can go for quite long periods of being unwell because we can't quite get the balance right. That's that's what happened to me last year. After I'd given up the breastfeed and I went back onto medication, I wanted to try different treatments that I'd done before. Um, 
and they, it's quite a long time like three months doesn't seem that long but it is when you're in pain so it's three months and then try another one three months then try another one so it's quite a long time and what do we know ellen about what causes arthritis is it a genetic condition or is it something that you pick up if you if you've had a serious injury for example in the past now that's something that the not arthritis care but arthritis researcher are involved with is looking at what causes it in the first place because we can tell somebody what they've got and we know what's the best option to try to treat it but we can't always say you've got this because and sometimes it can be stress trauma um, previous illness like Helen was told it could be to do with the knee injury that she'd had Um, and there is a genetic component but it's not hereditary it's one of the first questions you ask is Mm. why me why have I got this and nobody can give you an answer because nobody seems to know and really this can affect anybody of any age and even babies Ellen yes yeah it it, it can be diagnosed from naught to a hundred and odd um more rheumatoid more common from 35 to 60 psoriatic arthritis from 25 to 55 Dif- different forms of arthritis come on at different ages but any any of them can strike at any age so the reality is then i mean we've got at least 8000 people in the isle of man who have got some form of arthritis and um helen you are a member of the arthritis care ellen vannon which offers i'm guessing support and and just the ability to talk to somebody who truly understands what you're going through. We've been providing coffee and chat nights around the island in in the different harbour lights for the last year. Um, We've tried other things, but we haven't had much take up for it. So we want to get the message out there that we are here. And if you've got any ideas that you would like arthritis care to do for the community, then, then we're here to tell us and we'll do it. I was talking about Arthritis Care Awareness Week which starts on the 14th. What specific events are you doing for that? Um, just ne- Next week we've got two coffee events happening. One in the morning on Tuesday the 17th from 1.30 till 4 o'clock at Datu. And, and Datu next- just for, just for people oh, yeah, who don't That's know. where Ellen works. <laughs> it's the place next to um, what was Ward 20, isn't it? Yeah. In the, in the Newlands building at Nobles Hospital. Yeah. And so the other coffee is on the Wednesday as well from 10 until 12.30. So we just want people to come along, have a chat, talk about their challenges and triumphs and share ideas of things they've tried, things they haven't tried, that haven't worked, things like that. Um, basically, we want to try and help people beat the isolation which can um, result from the pain that caused by arthritis. <laughs> The Deadwood stages are rolling on over the plane. Um, Christy, they're just putting um, the other seats in there so we can have a go. I'm not sure I like the way Linda said, ooh, this is going to be good fun. She said she's going to go really quick with us. I'm sure we'll be fine. It's an enclosed arena. It's fine. <laughs> crack away, whip, crack away, whip, crack away. See you on the other side. <laughs> We're in. We're in. Okay. Look, there's a pony in front of us. Be gentle with us, Linda. Oh, 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 Christy's got some reins. Oh, oh, that makes me feel even more nervous. I'm in control, Beth. I'm in control. Okay. Do you know what you're doing? No. (laughs) We haven't got a clue. Okay. Christy's got reins. Bertie's ready to go. And um, yeah. What do I do with these, Linda? (laughs) She's very good at telling people what to do, so I have every confidence in this bit. So rude, Beth. Are you ready? Okay. Bertie, walk on. (laughs) And we're going. 
Look at this. I made him oh, move. Oh, wow. Oh, welcome. So are you like um, the second driver, essentially? So if he sort of takes off and doesn't stop, you can jump in, can you? Yes, yes. <laughs> I, have a, I have a second set of reins so that I can control the horse if needed. But I do with all my sessions, no matter what disability, I, if I can, I try and teach the person to drive correctly. Uh-huh. Have fun, go in and out the cones. We've got um, a circle today. And then down the bottom of the arena, we've got cones with colours. So that helps people to identify colours and we talk about colours and we can talk about parts of the carriage, parts of the horse, you know, and, and, and enjoy and give a wave to the people that's in the restaurant when there's a few people here. Ooh. Are you ready? Oh my gosh, we're going to get the trot. <laughs> Oh, oh it's that. quite quick. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm determined he goes through Come the cones. <laughs> Come on. Can I get him through? Can I get him through? Yay! Yeah. Hey. You could have got a double-decker bus Head through the there. Outside cone. Oh. oh, lovely. Walk on. Wow. I am Walk a bit on. impressed. Do you know what? We're going so quick, my eyes are actually watering. <laughs> <laughs> How do you think she's done on her first attempt? Extremely well, actually. Yes. You are far too kind. Isn't no, you? no, you were good. <laughs> Lots of people go, oh my God, it's so far. Because you, you've got 15 foot, 18 yes. foot between you and, and the horse, really, mm-hmm. from his mouth. <sighs> you really are getting far too used to oh, this. I like it. Do you feel quite regal, actually? I could get used to this way of travel. Are you going to demand now that this is the way you get <laughs> moved around from now? Yes. This is how she'll be arriving to Douglas Head tomorrow. If you could be at mine. It's suitable time. <laughs> Thank you so much for downloading the Women Today podcast. If you'd like to keep up to date with what we're doing, then you can head over to the Women Today Facebook page. We're also on Twitter. It's at MR Women Today. And as ever, we'd love to hear from you. If you think there's something that we should be talking about, do get in touch with us. You can email womentoday at manxradio.com. Until next time then, goodbye. Don't sit in the slow lane. Join the fast lane right now with Shaw's all-new Superfast Plus Broadband. Enjoy more bandwidth, amazing speeds and the best value on the island from just £23.95 per month. So don't be left behind. Get a piece of the high-speed action with Superfast Plus Broadband from Shaw. For details, visit our stores in Douglas, Ramsey and Port Erin or click shaw.com. Love being Shaw. Terms and conditions apply.